all this stuff that we're doing, right? is uh, whether it's a bylaws change or whether it's an outreach event or whether it's changes like we've made here recently and moving, uh, relocating our worship services, future changes that we're trying to get towards like building a building. It's all part of being, of moving forward and being the people that God wants us to be to reach our neighbors and to reach our neighborhoods uh, for the Lord Jesus Christ. And we are striving to continually become a new North Park. He said, I don't want, we don't need to be a new North. Oh, yeah, he's making all things new. And so we're constantly in a state of being made new. As believers and as a church family, we want to be made new. And that means sometimes we've got to do some new things to reach new people, and that's okay too. But the most important thing that we do in order to reach new people for Christ is to be the new people that the New Testament calls us to be a whole new kind of people. And that's what our sermon is about today. So there's a segue for you from announcements to the sermon, all right? So the most important thing is to be a new kind of people. What kind of people does the New Testament call us to be? What does it look like to believe the gospel and to live it out in a church family and in a neighborhood and in our world today? And today we're gonna look at that. What we, we, the kind of people that the gospel is shaping us into. Listen, our culture is desperate for a picture of a better way to do life, to do neighboring, to do community. I mean, our, our world is hungry and desperate for this because, man, it, we just our culture's messed up right now because we're sinners, right? And so, we, and we live in a particular time where, man, people are constantly at each other's throat. People are making money, hyping us up, and getting us angry at people don't, that don't think exactly like we do. Uh, that's, that's, the, that's the mood of the culture. And we have a responsibility to be a different kind of people than that kind of people, right? We've been made, if you believe the gospel, you've been made new and are being made new by the Lord Jesus Christ. And the way you treat people, the way I treat people, the way we respond to things like conflict, all that sort of stuff is supposed to be radically different than the world around us. We're to be a new kind of people, a new kind of community. And Romans chapter 12, verses 9 through 21, lays this out as well as anything in the New Testament. It's, it's a long list in a way of character traits and things like that of Christians, but it's an incredible list. It's a convicting list. So let's read it together. This is the Apostle Paul, Romans chapter 12, verses 9 through 21. Remember, he told us last week we need to be transformed by the renewal of our minds, living these transformed lives because we believe the gospel. Here's what it looks like, starting in verse 9. Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Verse 19, beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. 
For it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Now, when you read that text with me, and you look at it there on the screen or on your device or in your Bible, if you're like me, you read that and you go, wow, this sounds hard. (laughs) It's, It's incredibly hard. None of this is human nature. Most of this is extremely countercultural to the way we do life in our world and in our culture and in the West and, and even the way sometimes we behave at church. I mean, this doesn't even describe Thanksgiving dinner with some families. I mean, this is incredible stuff. Like, you kind of read it and you kind of go, can this even be real? Like, can this really be lived out? Like, is this even an accurate picture of what the body of Christ can look like when I, when I, when I read this? It's kind of like back when, when I was a kid and I'd watch the old, these old things. And I had loved my family. I had a great, I don't have like a really scarred childhood or anything like that. Praise God, I have a great family, love my family. And, but, you know, you go like and you, you'd watch like Leave It to Beaver and you'd be like, is that real? <laughs> like, is that really? I don't think, you know, I don't, I don't know. You know, or you watch uh, the Andy Griffith show, some of these old black and white shows, you're like, is that really a city? Is that really, is that really how a town would work? Is that really how a justice system would work? I mean, really a sheriff without a gun? Uh, I mean, all these sort of things. It's kind of like, and it, it wasn't, right? It was like this portrayal of an idea, right? And sometimes if we're not careful, we'll read this stuff and we'll kind of go, oh, that sounds idealistic. It sounds nice and sweet, but can that really be real? And in our world today, we don't even, by the way, you go watch our TV shows and our movies today, there's not even a lot of that kind of stuff where you look at it and kind of go, oh, such a, how can that even, that utopian place even, no, it's like most of the stuff today, you read it and you watch it and you're kind of like, my family's not that bad, right? (laughs) My workplace is not that bad. I don't know anybody that horrible. You know, it's like the other side of things because it's like in our culture, we've even lost a way to, to portray something, as I, something to aspire to. It's like that's not even there for us anymore. Well, good news is we, as the church of Jesus Christ, have the responsibility to not simply present an idea, but to live something out for everybody to look to and long for and to thirst for. We are to be... As Jesus said it before Ronald Reagan, a city on a hill. <laughs> we are to be the light of the world. And so that when, G- when people look at us, they see Jesus in us and how Jesus is impacting us. And that's what this text is calling us to. But in our world today, many times our lives and our neighborhoods and our workplaces look nothing like this text. And the reason for it is we're sinners Paul took the first three chapters to explain very clearly why Romans 12, 9 through 21 is not being lived out in our families, in our workplaces, in our neighborhoods, on our street, and in some of our churches. It's because we're sinners and we are, we, are, we are fallen and we are broken and we do things that are not according to God's design. But he also took great detail in Romans to explain to us the good news of Jesus and how God is reconciling us to himself through faith in Jesus Christ who died for us and has risen again. And here in this chapter, he's showing us as people that believe the gospel, this is how the gospel should begin reshaping our lives, reshaping our families. Here, reshaping our church, our community of faith. 
because we are being transformed by the renewal of our mind in Romans 12 too. So the big picture is this is the type of people the gospel shapes us into. One of our core values actually here um, that we've had over the last couple of years is gospel-shaped community. In other words, we believe the good news of what Jesus has done in his death, burial, and resurrection and the grace shown us in Jesus Christ should shape how we do life together as a community of faith, how we treat one another, how we engage with those outside the community of faith, how we think about one another. All those things should be shaped and informed by the fact that we are all sinners in need of Christ's mercy and grace, and he has shown us that, and we have experienced his love and forgiveness, and that should shape how we do life together. And here in this text, I think there are three principles about how the gospel should shape this new people, this new kind of people we're called to be, three ways that it shapes us. So let me give them to you. The first one is the gospel should shape our guiding ethic. The gospel should shape our guiding ethic, our guiding principle, our guiding rule. In verse 9, he says, let love be genuine, abhor what is evil, and hold fast to what is good. He doesn't even really go out out of his way to command love because it was so assumed. He's actually going to get to that in the next chapter and talk about the importance of of fulfilling the law through love. But it was understood then. It was understood in the Old Testament. But it it was really the light was shown on it in the New Testament that the big guiding ethic for us is what? Love God with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength. Love our neighbor as ourself. And within the community of faith, we, man, there's supposed to be a special and unique love for one another. Jesus even said, the way people will know we belong to him is by our love for one another. Not by, not by how, how perfect our doctrine is, not by how great our worship service is, not by the way we dress or what, what our preferences are, but our love for one another. He says, is how people will actually know we belong to him. So the gospel is supposed to be shaping our guiding ethic. It's kind of assumed here in this text. And commentators will tell you that the theme of love really runs throughout this entire section. As those being transformed, we are to, yes, love God, love one another, and love others. And Paul shows us various ways we're going to get into in this text of how to, or what it looks like to love one another. And what it looks like to love your neighbor, even your neighbor who may hate you. See, the love that is truly gospel-shaped, as he says here, and it's informed by uh, the gospel as it's been laid out in Romans that we've studied for months, is a love that is genuine or authentic. It, is the, it means literally without hypocrisy. It, it's, a, it's a love that is not in word only. The New Testament tells us we're to love not in word only, but in deed and in truth. But there's a temptation, temptation, that since we, as good Christian people, know that we are supposed to love one another, the temptation is to fake it and to love in word only. The Bible tells us we're not supposed to do that, though. It's got to be in deed and in truth. But because we feel this pressure, well, it's the Christian thing to do is to love, so even if I don't love you right now, I'm going to fake it till I make it kind of thing. And so we just got to have this, we can have this inauthentic, and that's why he's saying, no, 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 no. It's got to be genuine. See, fake love is happy to attend a church with someone. Just don't ask me to be kind or generous or forgiving to that person. That's not New Testament love. It's happy to serve on a committee or on a ministry team, just not with that person. That's fake, inauthentic, not genuine love. Now, Paul elaborates by showing that authentic love will abhor what is evil 
and hold fast to what is good. See, love isn't without moral clarity. Love is not divorced from truth. Love requires discernment. I like the way commentator Douglas Moo says it. He writes this, Love is not genuine when it leads a person to do something evil or to avoid doing what is right as defined by God and his word. So, as those transformed by the gospel, we love, but that love will always be in line with God's truth and not at war with God's truth. For instance, if I begin to condone sin in the name of love, right? Somebody I know and love begins to pursue something that I know is sinful, and I begin to go, you know what? I begin to reinterpret the whole New Testament or the whole Bible so that I don't damage that relationship and so that I feel like I can embrace everything about their behavior and everything because I love them. Love is not motivating me there. Fear is. By the way, perfect love casts out fear. That's in the New Testament too. No, no, love abhors what is evil, clings to what is good. Authentic love does this. If I begin to actually do evil and to condone evil and say I'm motivated by love, that can't be so either. As the new people shaped by the gospel, our love has to be authentic. It has to be discerning. It has to embrace what is good and abhor what is evil. And we can look at someone and we can say, I disagree with this, but I still love you. And in love, I might have to actually sometimes confront things with you and talk to you about things and say, man, I love you. You're, we, we both believe Jesus is the son of God. We both, man, we go to the same church. We say we believe basically the same things, but I see this in your life and it is harming you and those around. We might have to have tough conversations. Because that's authentic love. Instead of running away from it and just saying, because I love you, I I can't have those conversations. Love's not motivating that. So the gospel needs to shape our guiding ethic, and that guiding ethic is love. The second thing is the gospel should shape our culture in the church. Our culture in the church. The gospel and the ethic of love begins to shape and redefine who we are, both individually and as a corporate body. It begins to affect, in other words, how we interact with one another, how we treat one another, or it's supposed to. It should. And Paul here in these verses is a big part of it is he is showing us what gospel culture, a culture that is shaped by the belief in Jesus and his death, burial, and resurrection and forgiveness for sinners and grace and mercy and those truths we hold so dear, what it looks like when that begins to shape how we think and feel. I've used this quote before, and you may have heard it other places. Uh, uh, management guru Peter Drucker once famously said, culture eats strategy for breakfast. In other words, man, you can have a great plan right? Here's how we're going to make disciples as a church, right? Here's how we're going to disciple people. We're going to, and here's what we're going to do. We're going to have a service at this time. We're going to have small groups in this way, and we're going to do this, and this is the process. And, and here's how we're going to do church government, and here's what our deacons are going to do, and what our pastors are going to do, and here's what committees are going to And you can have an incredible just structure and strategy, but if the culture is not being infused and transformed by the good news of Jesus Christ, it is going to eat that up. I don't care how good your plan is, right? And that's true in an organization, and that's true in a church. The culture of the place will dominate. Pastor and author Ray Ortland, I'm going to quote him at length here in a minute, he rightly says that culture, gospel culture in the church, is the vibe and tone of the people as sweetened by the gospel. 
It's the, it's the feel. It's the tone. You, you, when you show up for a Sunday and you hang around for two or three weeks, you get, begin to get this sense for how things work and how people treat one another and, and, what, and what the place is like. It, it begins to affect things. Every church has a culture. Every organization has a culture. Every family has a culture. I'll give you an example. My favorite fast food restaurant, without qualification, without caveat, 10 times on Monday, 10 times on Saturday, but unfortunately zero times on Sunday, is Chick-fil-A, right? And they are wildly popular. And one of the reasons they're wildly popular is they have, by the way, a fantastic chicken sandwich. But that is not the sole reason they are successful. A lot of places have good food. They have a particular culture in that place. And whether I am back home in North Alabama where I'm from or whether I'm home here in Orlando, Florida, I go in and I get good service and I get good food and it is their pleasure to give it to me, right? And they have multiplied that around the country. And they even go to places where people in that culture are like, well, we don't like your religious views. I'll have a number five, right? <laughs> Why? Because, man, it's just the culture, right? And, and you know what I'm talking about. And you can go into different places, different restaurants, different stores. Walmart has a distinct culture when you go into that store. And you better be able to figure it out. Because they're not going to help you, um, usually. <laughs> right? Target has a distinct culture when you go in there. All these places are diff different grocery stores, Publix, you name it. They all have a different culture about the way they do the organization, the way they do business. Well, churches are the same way. Listen to this quote from Ray Ortland. It's on the screen for you. I took a, couple of, took a couple of screenshots here for you to be able to see it, but follow along with me. I love this quote. He says, in a gospel culture, the people do not eye one another with negative scrutiny and merciless comparisons and guarded aloofness, but they move toward one another with rejoicing, acceptance, and honor. Why? Because in every true Christian, Christ is there, the hope of glory. I don't have to like everything about your personality to love Jesus in you and to see Jesus in you, right? I mean, it, we are supposed to be, I love that phrase, moving toward one another with joy and acceptance and honor as those who are in Christ together. As Ortland points out, there is a problem if we have a gospel doctrine in our church but not a gospel culture. If we believe and teach grace and mercy and forgiveness from Christ, but we don't practice it and how we interact one another, with one another and treat one another. If we, if we believe that Jesus humbled himself to die for us, but we won't humble ourselves to serve one another and to honor one another, we got a problem, right? And I'm telling you, you can have great gospel doctrine and bad gospel culture and you're going to have a problem that's going to prevent you from growth. It's going to prevent us from maturity. It's going to prevent other people from coming in and wanting to be a part. They go hand in hand. Bad doctrine is bad for a church. Bad culture is bad for a church. Both of those things are important. And because we're all sinners, we have a, a tendency to drift away, not towards one another and gospel culture. So here's what gospel culture looks like, according to the Apostle Paul. This is what he's laying out for us. So I'm going to give you some characteristics. It's a list. He says warmth. He says brotherly affection. You see that? Brotherly affection. Phileo love. There is to be a warmth, a brotherly love within the church body. There should be an obvious camaraderie. It's not a place for cold stares and cold shoulders and grudges to be held. 
It's not a place where people can't be in the same room together because of something that happened 15 years ago. That's the world. That's the flesh. That is not supposed to be the church. In a family, you have issues. You do what? You deal with it. You confess your sin. You repent of your sin. You apologize for your wrongdoings. You hug it out. and You move on. Brotherly affection, warm. This should be a warm place, right? It should be a place of honor. That's the next characteristic, honor. He says, outdo one another in showing honor. You see the word one another? Paul loves that phrase in his books, one another. And when you see those phrases, he is describing the culture of the church. Outdo one another in showing honor. In other words, go out of your way to encourage and make sure people are seen in the correct light. Give the benefit of the doubt. As Ortland, who I quoted, writes, recognize that Christ, what Christ is doing in and through someone. See, when we honor a Christ follower for what Christ is doing in their life, we glorify Christ when we do it well. This should be a place where we honor one another, that we, we honor a good godly service, we, where we honor faithfulness, where we honor people for what God's doing in their life or has done in their life, where we just we seek to give preference and to defer to. I mean, it should be one of those places where it's just kind of like, man, everybody's just trying so hard for you to take my seat. It's, it's a place of honor. Not, uh, several months ago, uh, we had the discussion within our, our deacon body to decide whether we should do something. We had, ne- we had talked about never done something called deacon emeritus. And you might remember back this summer, we, we, we gave that honor to several of our deacons who had been deacons some for 50 years, many of whom can't be with us anymore. Why do, why do something like that? Because this is supposed to be a place of honor. And if we can't honor those who have helped lay the foundation before, it should be a place where the younger people want to honor the senior adults. And in so doing, the senior adults, man, they're wanting to honor the young families that are coming. Everybody's trying to make everybody just feel welcomed and feel received and feel loved. It's not me versus you. Man, this is honor, 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 because I see Christ in you. That's the picture that he's painting for us here. A place of warmth, a place of honor, a place of passionate service. Verse 11, do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. What's he saying there? Don't be lazy spiritually. Don't be lazy in your service. Be passionate. Serve the Lord. The Holy Spirit is be filling us and moving us into service. In other words, I should not have to be begged to serve, and neither should you. None of us should be. We should be passionate about how can I contribute? How can I get involved? Not making excuses for why I can't, but looking for a reason why I can. To not be slothful in my zeal, but to be fervent in spirit, serving the Lord. Another characteristic is perseverance. Verse 12, he says, rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. That old triad kind of goes together. Our, our hope is our final salvation when Christ will return and believers will be transformed into uh, the, the, the ultimate image that God wants us to, to be and to look like Christ, to be more like Christ in our moral conformity and all those things and having a body that doesn't grow old and doesn't sin and we sin no more. All that stuff we celebrate, that, that's that, that hope. We rejoice in the hope of that. That's the New Testament hope of the Christian. But in this world we have trial and tribulation and difficulty and pain 
And as we rejoice in hope, it allows us to be patient in tribulation. And as we are constant in prayer, it allows us to be patient in tribulation so that we persevere together as we await the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ or our departing to go be with him in death, whichever comes first. This is a place where we help one another persevere. Generosity, verse 13, contribute to the needs of the saints. Generosity. If someone has a need, we're supposed to meet it. This is a place where we are to show unusual generosity to help those in need, especially those who are in Christ, especially those who are in our body. We have our first responsibility to one another before the Lord. That's throughout the New Testament. We have a responsibility to be generous towards our neighbors, to be generous towards all Christians, to be generous, 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 and it starts in here with the people in the the local body you're a part of. To contribute to the needs of the saints. Gener- a generous place where we hold all things loosely. Here's another one. Hospitality. He says, seek to show hospitality. Not just be hospitable when the opportunity arises. Seek it out. Look for excuses and reasons to be hospitable. See, it was a big deal in the Apostle Paul's day, hospitality was, because hotels and inns as they would have had then were either very expensive or very dangerous, right? And so it was either so expensive that most Christians couldn't afford it or so dangerous, man, nobody would want to stay there. And as the gospel was being spread from region to region and as evangelists and apostles went into places to preach the gospel, they were dependent on people who had who would believe the gospel to give them a place to stay for a few days before they moved to the next place. So, I mean, the, the mission was really, man, it, it needed hospitality of God's people. It, it, it helped grease the wheels for the mission of God. And let me just say, it still does today. It still does today. Uh, I, I think one of the primary ways that we'll be able to do evangelism in the New Testament, uh, excuse me, in, in, in a lot of the New Testament in our culture today is through the ministry of hospitality. It, you know, it literally means love of strangers, Here he's talking about, in particular, being hospitable to one another in the body of Christ. But we're called to be hospitable, welcoming, warm people that look for reasons to show hospitality, not just have it thrust upon us. Christ welcomes us, so we welcome all. He gave his life, we give what we have. He gave his best, we give our best. So we need to be hospitable individually, Opening our homes, opening our lives, opening our bank accounts, whatever we need to do to help and serve people. And we need to be hospitable corporately as a welcoming church. Look, we should expect guests here. We don't have visitors. If you're with us today and you're like, I'm not paying, you're, you're not a visitor, you're guests. See, visitors sometimes are unexpected and kind of a burden. Guests are expected and welcome, right? Like Disney doesn't say, you know, be our visitor. No, it's be our guest. Right? And as a church, it's, it's, it's guests. We, we expect you. We, we want you here. We want to show hospitality to you. So we should present, as we come together corporately, a clean, safe, excellent environment filled with warmth and joy. Hey, when you come to church next week, and by all means, please do, walk into this place and pretend you've never been before. From the moment you drive in. And then give me feedback. I welcome it because I'm constantly trying to think about those things because we're trying to think about guests. And that's what that looks like, right? That's part of hospitality. So what does it look like to walk in? What's the greeting like? What's the word? What's the room laid out like? What's the place look like? All these things. What's childcare like? What's drop-off like? Pick-up like? What are all these things like? And think about it in terms of 
I'm here for the first time, and I'm trying to decide if I'm coming back again. Think about that when you think about how you interact with other people when you're in worship. If guests depended upon me and how I treat them to make their decision about whether or not they will come back next week, would they? And if you go, well, I can't remember the last time I even spoke to or welcomed a guest. The answer is they would not come back. Right? right. We've got to get outside of our comfort zone, right? We've got to be hospitable. He's not calling us to be over-the-top weird. He's calling us to be a welcoming, warm, loving, hospitable people that's just looking for a reason to defer to somebody else and invite them in. Sympathy is another characteristic. Verse 15, rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. I had a bad week, but you had a good week. I should rejoice with you. You should weep with me. Right? It's, it's sympathy, sympathetic towards what we're going through. Not just towards the church, though, by the way. We should do that towards our neighbors, too. One of the ways we can connect with our neighbors and reach our neighbors is by weeping when they weep and rejoicing when they rejoice. Right? The coworker that got the promotion over you, right? You want to reach them for Christ? Rejoice with them. Enter into someone's mourning when they're hurting. Whatever it may be, there's so many different ways. But the idea is, because we're connected, especially in the body of Christ, we can kinda, should kind of be feeling what other people are feeling. Sympathy. Harmony. Verse 16, live in harmony with one another. That's another characteristic. It literally means to think the same way towards one another. Uh, there's to be a commonality, a harmony, a place where we're all looking to build one another and thinking of each other in a way that is seeking to edify one another, that's seeking to humble ourselves and to exalt others. That just this, this harmony, man, that makes the place a sweeter place. And humility is another characteristic. Humility, which undergirds all this. He says, do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly and never be wise in your own sight. All this is about humility. See, haughtiness is the opposite of humility. It's pride. And associating with the lowly there, it, it can mean a couple of things. One, it can, mean, it can mean doing tasks that some people consider menial and lowly. Another, it can be associating with people that culture and social class might would say is below you in class. Socially. Being wise in your own eyes, is, is a, it's another way of saying being unteachable, which is a form of pride. And what Paul wants us to understand is there is no social classes in the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. None whatsoever. The ground is level at the foot of the cross. We're all in this thing together. We can all learn from one another. We all need the collective wisdom of the family of God. And there is nothing that needs to be done that is beneath you or beneath me, right? If I'm or we or you, if someone is too gifted to serve in a particular area, or to pick up trash, or to do something that they view as below them, then guess what? Then they're too proud to use whatever gift God has given them in a way that would be effective for the body of Christ, right? Humility. Now, who would not want to attend a church defined by those characteristics? Who would not want to be friends with people who live their life by these principles? See, when the gospel is shaping the culture, when it is defining us, not tradition, not preference, not age, not income level, not social status, but gospel, 
A common need for mercy and grace and brotherhood as fellow blood-bought children of God, it begins to draw us towards others. And by the way, it begins to draw others toward us. Gospel culture. And every person, every people, every culture is being shaped by someone or something. Something's informing the culture of your family, the culture of this church, the church down the street, your workplace. Something's informing that culture. Some sort of value system is informing everything. And it's noticeable, especially by those on the outside coming in. Sometimes it's a, culture's like being in a pool and, you, and you're like a fish in water and you're just kind of like, what? Everything's wet. But those from the outside, they're like, oh, swimming pool, right? And there's this in the pool and that in the pool, and I can see it. And sometimes we get lost in it. But I'm telling you, everything's being shaped. Everything's being informed by something. And what's informing and shaping the culture becomes evident to other people. My kids all like to draw, all three of them. I've got a one-year-old, soon to be two, a four-year-old, and a six-year-old. They have different levels of ability in those ages. And so when they draw something, right, and they may, or they make something and they bring it to me, hey, I gave this to you, um, I know who drew it usually immediately upon viewing it. You put my kid's art on the wall and I could tell you this one's Cannon's, this one's Eden's, this one's Brooks, you know. I know who drew that. I know who made that. And similarly, when the world looks at the church, if we're really being transformed by the gospel, and that, that is what is shaping our culture, they should look and they should come in and they should go, Jesus is there. Jesus is shaping that person. Jesus is shaping that people. I may not agree with their view on this, 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 and this. I may not agree with where they stand on this. I cannot deny the fact that they treat people well, that they love people, that they honor people, that they give people the benefit of the doubt. The culture will be known. And if the culture is toxic, if it's negative, they'll never care to hear the message. The gospel should be shaping our culture among one another. And the last thing, quickly, is the gospel should shape our response when we're wrong world. See, Paul talks about two categories here. Those that believe like we do in the local church together, and then he also addresses, well, what about people that don't believe what we believe? And he goes to the extreme and gives us the example of not just unbelievers, no, people who would be willing to persecute you and harm you and hurt you because of what you believe, or people out in the world that would just do you wrong because, man, some, that's just sin and sin. We, we do people wrong. Sometimes we do one another wrong. So the gospel should be shaping how we respond to the world. In particular, how we respond when we're wronged in the world because we're being made new by it. In verse 14, he says, bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. You know what that sounds like? Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount. Actually, much of this passage is just kind of like commentary almost on the Sermon on the Mount. Paul's just elaborating on more stuff that Jesus taught us. This is how Jesus calls and empowers us to live, to bless, not curse those who persecute us. You know, so well, how, do I, how, do I bless, how do you bless a persecutor? Now, by the way, they weren't being persecuted when Paul wrote this, but they would be later. And you're probably not experiencing persecution either, but you might later. 
And so we need to be prepped for it. And he says, you're to, you're to seek to bless them. Here's the best way. Number one, pray. Pray what? For, for God to rain fire and brimstone stone upon my person. You know, pray for God to save them and to bless them and to, to work his best in their life. To transform their heart, sure. That's the first way we bless people. Let me ask you, what did Jesus do for the people that crucified him? He prayed for them. Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. First martyr, Stephen, in Acts chapter 7, what did he do when he was persecuted and was murdered for his faith? He prayed, Father, forgive them. Where did he get that from? He got it from his Lord, right? The good news of Jesus was shaping and informing how he engaged with people and responded to people that wronged him. In verse 17, he says, repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. There's that word honor again. And that's the temptation, is to respond to evil with evil. That's the flesh. But we're actually called to not do that, and instead to do what is honorable in the sight of everyone. There are some things, by the way, that he's saying here, is that, we, we just, that everybody just kind of knows is right. We just know. Because they're made in the image of God, there's just some things that we know that that's an honorable thing to do for someone, that that's the right thing to do. That is a way to bless someone. He says we're to strive for those things in our intentions towards everyone, even people that wrong us, he's saying. In other words, how we engage with others that do not believe what we believe, and here especially others that wrong us, right, or we feel wronged by them, how we engage with them and respond to them matters deeply. How we debate about cultural issues matters. Not just whether you're on the right side of the argument, but how you argue. Absolutely, 1,000% matters. All these things matter. How we discuss politics matter. Doesn't mean we shouldn't discuss them. Doesn't mean we can't have opinions. Doesn't mean we can't be passionate about our opinions. But the way we present those ideas to people that don't have those opinions, it matters. Listen, an eye for an eye, that's the culture's way today. But it is not the way of Jesus. And it cannot be our way. It cannot be our way. We are called to love and honor even those that wrong us, much less those that we dis disagree with. Verse 18, if possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Whoa. Now, he says if possible because sometimes it's not possible. Sometimes people don't want peace with you. Sometimes the persecutor would rather kill you. But he says as much as it depends on you, live at peace. You have a responsibility to live at, to live at peace. In other words, if we're on the outs with them, it shouldn't be our fault. Jesus said it this way, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Right? It's our posture. Our posture is supposed to be peace and to want peace with people. We got to beware the Wild West mentality. Right? We were watching Westerns as a kid. I wish I could do the little whistle, the little doo -doo -doo -doo. I can't do it. Guy walks in. You bump into his table. It's drink spills. Wrong guy to mess with. Right? That guy's got a reputation in town. Now he's going to go outside and y'all are going to draw. We're going to see who wins. Wild West mentality. And if we have a personality, if we have a way about we do life that, that people's attitude is, let me tell you what you don't do. You don't mess with them. You do not want to cross them. And we take pride in that. That is a reproach to God. 
That is sinful. No, 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 no. It should be, you know, I wronged them one time, and you cannot believe the grace and mercy that they showed me and how they approached me over that. Not over, you won't believe, yeah, boy, payback was, that's the world, that's the flesh, that's not Christ. Verse 19, never avenge yourselves, leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. So I'm going to get you, I'll get you back, payback is, it's not God's way, right? And that's hard for us, because we got superheroes, comic book heroes, a whole nine yards based off vengeance. Whole movies and TV shows based off people getting revenge. Because it's human nature. But it's, it's not natural to forgive. And it's natural to want to pay back. It's supernatural to forgive. And that's what God's called us to. So you mean vigilante justice isn't Christian? No. Vengeance belongs to God. And we're to trust him with judgment. And we'll see that God's instituted government for things in this life over in chapter 13 next week. He talks about burning coals and putting it on someone's head. How you'll heat burning coals in their head when you do these things. When you give them food, when you give them water, when you give these to people that wrong you or to your enemy or to those that persecute you. And most, and it's hard because it's quoted in the Proverbs and people go, what does that mean? And most commentators believe this in their day that this was a way, to, the idea was heaping shame upon them. That in other words, when I treat you this way, and you respond with such grace, it shames me. And the idea being maybe it will awaken me to my need for repentance. But if not, I trust that God's the judge, not me. And here's the big idea. As those who are made new by the gospel, yes, we're called to an ethic of love. And we can only love because what? He first loved us. And the more we realize how loved we are in Christ, the more we can love others, and that should start with one another. The gospel should be informing the culture of our church. But Jesus didn't simply love those who loved him, did he? The gospel doesn't just tell us that. He loved his enemies. So he not only taught this in the Sermon on the Mount, he lived it. In fact, at one time, you were an enemy of God. I was an enemy of God. We were the enemies that he laid his life down for. And the more that truth and the truth of what God has done for us in Christ takes root in our heart, the more that we can become the people that, yes, loves one another, but even more than that, engages our world and even our enemies with the love of Jesus Christ. It's our response to the gospel. But if we're going to show that kind of love, we've got to experience it. So my question for you is, have you experienced the love, grace, mercy, and forgiveness of Jesus in his death, burial, and resurrection for you? If not, that's step one to being transformed into a new kind of person is faith in Jesus Christ. Secondly, as a believer in Jesus Christ, what areas do you need the gospel to shape more in your life? And when you look at those character attributes, do you go, wow, I'm convicted here? And there should be some places because none of us have arrived, Right? On a scale of 1 to 10, on being a great Christian, there's not a 10 in the room. Jesus is the only one. We all fall short. So what areas do I need to repent of? What areas corporately as a church do we need to work on? Because we got some we need to work on. That starts with me. I get that. But we're not a perfect church either. We don't have a perfect church culture. I love our church. I think we love one another. I think we can do better. 
And I think if we do better 10 years from now, we'll still be able to do better because we're not going to arrive in this life. But we press on. Let's pray.